Thanks. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for your uh, for trusting me with your make make do platform pulpit. Um, but it's always a joy to come back to South Africa. And um, you know what amazes me? I've been a believer now for a few years, 40, 45 years, and um, and I've seen a lot around the world. And no matter what we do, God builds his church. Um, the more I get to know myself, the more I realize what a mess up, messed up person I am. And God says, it doesn't bother me too much. I'll just work in your life and through your life. And that just makes you humble, it makes us all so thankful. Because as we get older, we get to know ourselves and grace only abounds and uh, so that just sums up my life where I'm at um, I'm married one wife four children and eight grandchildren and counting um, so operation mobilization I've been with OM 37 years and I've known Adrian more than 25 years and um, when you've been with a company and an organization that long, you have many reasons to leave. But I've got more reasons to stay. And the main reason why I'm with OM and I'll continue to serve with OM is because our vision. And that is that we want to see vibrant communities of Jesus followers amongst the least reached. Now, of course, you can have a big discussion and we have one internally that will go on until the Lord comes to define what the least reach are. And I'm always saying, let's keep it simple. It's probably your neighbor to start with. And so let's not get carried away, but let's really focus our energy on living out the gospel and the values and the changed and the transformed lives that draws people to Jesus. And that's always been the secret of the church. When you study church history, the first 350 years where it was almost impossible to join a church because it was underground, there was no strategy, and many people thought the Great Commission was already fulfilled when Paul died and the other guys. And yet the church grew. And the main reason why the church grew was transformed lives. People noticed that Christians, those crazy followers of Jesus, did things differently. When there was this world plague and everybody ran away, who were the first in the front lines to serve those that were dying? The believers. Because that's what Jesus would do. And that's still, that's still true today. And even though we have the freedom of religion and we can express our worship to God freely with open doors, nobody's bothering us, you will say, well, that makes it easier. But it all boils down to us living transformed lives. And that's a journey. And I'm going to take you a little bit on a journey. And um, like I've, I've, I've tried to imagine what would it be like if I could hang out with Jesus the way the disciples did for three years, you know, uh, with him on trips that he took, ministry trips, and he would teach us, and I would be part of the inner circle of 12. I would be so close to him, physically close. I mean, what would my life look like after three years? Well, I tell you, I would be a walking saint, absolutely. Uh, and then we read the story of the disciples, and we realize and we wonder, why didn't that happen? Why? It's, it just blows your fuses. You, you know, you think, you know, really, if hanging, hanging out with Jesus, that would be, 
ah, I would, I would completely transform. And uh, anyway, so we'll take a few stops because they were on a three-year journey close to him. And uh, then I'll, I'm going to stop at a few incidents. But just imagine the three-year journey close to Jesus, very intimate you could ask, you know, could you please elaborate on that statement? And he would just, around the campfire, he would just take them on, you know, unpacking it, etc. cetera. Uh, so all the wisdom, all the knowledge, straight from the heart of Jesus. And uh, then there's a few incidents. First of all, we read um, Matthew 4, verse 18 through 22. That's where we start. Matthew 4, verse 18 through 22. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets, and he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. And they're in for a journey. And when Jesus has his gang together, uh, they start off. And there's going to be a few stops, and we will be looking at that incident and see what we can learn from them. Because one of the things I like about scripture, it doesn't hide our humanness. It's not just swiping it under the carpet and then pretending it's not there. The, it's quite often raw, it's real, it's straight in the face. And I think it helps us um, to, to, to identify with the characters in scripture uh, and then we look in the mirror and, uh, and we'll say, you know, they were no different and we're no different. So let's, uh, let's stop at um, the first stop, Matthew 8, 23, verse 27, where Jesus calms the storm. Uh, and we're all familiar with the story, so we're not going to read the whole story. But when the storm actually starts to blow up and uh, etc., and the, the Jesus just lying there sleeping, the disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And Jesus responded, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. And then he calms the storm. But it's also the first time that we read in Matthew's gospel that he starts calling them names. You little faithers. You have so little faith. And, you know, it's my first experience with Jesus calming a storm. So I said, well, we didn't know you could do this. So bear with us, okay? Have, be patient. It's new. So we're getting used to this, this stuff. Uh, but it's little faith. And that's the first thing we identify with, the little faith. We are little faithers. Sometimes we pretend that we have an enormous amount of faith. And we proclaim that nothing is impossible. But then if Jesus were to sit down with us and look us in the eyes, how do you really feel about it? Um, and then... The best thing when Jesus does that is to be brutally honest. Jesus, if I'm truly honest, I have yet to see it happen. And Jesus would say, it's okay. No worries. I can work with that. Because he continues to work with his disciples. 
Now, interesting thing, if it's a uh, if it's uh, uh, like chronological, the, the, all the events in Matthew, then we'll find in Matthew 10 verse 1, it's almost like the next morning or the day after at breakfast. They've just been called little faithers, and then Jesus uh, calls his 12 disciples in Matthew 10 verse 1. He calls them together and gives them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. Now, just imagine that. Last night, you've been called little faithers, and your heart sank. The next morning, Jesus says, okay, guys, I'm going to give you the authority to cast out evil spirits and heal every kind of disease and illness. I would just stop and say, I know it was night, Lord Jesus, and maybe you don't remember that it was me who was the guy with the little faith, and now you're doing this? This can't be real. And it's almost as if Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to wait for you to get your act together? Because if I have to wait for you to get your faith act together, nothing will ever happen. So I'm going to use you despite the fact you have little faith. What about that? So that sort of beefs up your self-image and, wow, wow. I would say, wow, that's quite, that's quite interesting. I would still be a little bit disturbed in my mind and my heart, you know, how this is all compute or try to make it compute and I can't get my head around it, so I'd better... I'd better have a go at it. And that's what they did. Then we're back, Matthew in the water, Matthew 14. Uh, it's a beautiful story. It's hilarious. I think it's, it, it all depends how you read scripture. But I, I can see the fun and the humor of what's happening in the lives uh, of the disciples uh, during those incidents. So let's turn to Matthew 14, verse 25. And it's another story we're quite familiar with, but I'm going to read it because it's, uh, it's, uh, I like the drama in the story. Matthew 14, verse 25. Oh, these letters are getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> so Jesus had sent his disciples uh, ahead, you know, they went on their boat and then the, um, um, they were fighting the waves, and then we read in 25, about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified in their fear. They cried out, it's a ghost. But then Jesus spoke to them at once, don't be afraid, he said, take courage, I am here. Cool. Then Peter called to him, and I think a lot of us identify with Peter. He doesn't think, he just reacts, he just responds. Uh, it's, so, it's so cool. He's very verbal and vocal. And uh, so, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you, walking on the water. And you can see the excitement and anticipation building up. Wow, this is going to be cool. This is going to be so cool. And then Jesus comes, and then Peter, of course, we know the story. He gets out of the boat and he starts walking toward Jesus, and immediately he sinks in the water. Because... Um, so Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus, but when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. So we usually, it's very tempting to start focusing on seeing, you know, um, uh, seeing the strong wind and the waves. Um, and we've had plenty of message, messages, don't, don't look at the circumstances, etc., etc. We know that. But it's actually, it's more interesting to, to focus in on something else, I think. Maybe it's just me because I'm Dutch. Um, so he began to sink, and 
what do you do when you sing, save me, Jesus, save me? And then what happens? Jesus immediately, immediately reached out to gr and grabbed him. Now, so Peter is still in the water. Jesus is grabbing his hand. And while Peter is still in the water, Jesus says, hey, hey, why did you doubt? I don't, well, there's one thing we don't know, and that's the intonation. Did he speak in anger or frustration or with, a, you know, with a lightness like I just did? Hey, my guy, why did you doubt? Or did he say, why on earth did you doubt, you fool? We don't know. But we can see Peter, regardless of the intonation, that you know, he's still in the water. Jesus grabs his arms. It's almost like Peter says, well, can we do the debrief later, please? Just pull me in. And then Jesus says, you have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? And that's where we identify with Peter. Because I think that's where his heart sank. Where he told himself, I should have known. I could have known. I could have known. Yes, I have little faith. And because probably his personality, his temperament, he was so verbal and articulate and impulsive, I think of all the disciples, he's, you know, in a sense, he, he suffered Oh, suffered his, it, it, he must have taken it hard at times. You know, probably when he got home later, he, he probably would have said, you know, what a fool am I? I'm such a fool. I'll never learn. Uh, and we identify with that. <laughs> I could have known. I should have known. Why can't I do better than this? And, of course, it's also interesting to read, you know, when they climbed back into the boat... The wind stopped, and the disciples worshipped him. And this is the first time that they're actually proclaiming, you really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. Before that, you know, wow, this is cool. He can do all sorts of tricks. But this is the first time they start to realize, you are truly the Son of God. So it starts to dawn on him, on them, who Jesus really is. They start off with a cool rabbi who did some cool stuff. And now... It starts to dawn on them. You, is, you are the son of God. And that's, that's a big thing. That's a huge revelation in their lives. Um, so, uh, chapter 16. Jesus is doing a little bit of a, uh, a survey. Who do the people say I am? And then he gets all the sorts of answers, you know, what do the, the common people think or what's the feedback you, you hear? And then he comes to the question, but who do you say I am? And then it's the same Simon Peter who answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And it all falls, falls quiet there. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, wow, you got it, man. But he says, well, Peter, it's the right answer, but you didn't, you didn't get it from yourself. It's my Father in heaven who revealed it to you. And they say, Peter, oh, there's nothing I can do right here. I can't even come up with an answer myself. I need a revelation from God. Is there any hope for me? So Peter's also the one who's being, I, I can see him lying awake at night, you know, just sort of trying to make sense of all of this. How does this work? And so, 
So he starts thinking about uh, forgiveness. And, you know, he's got nothing else to do. He can't sleep. So how often, how often, how many times do I, can I forgive my brother? And said, well, one time, yeah, sure, of course. We are all human, no problem. You sin against me, I forgive you. Second time, you do, you do the same trick, you do it again, same thing, same sin, and you come to me for forgiveness. I said, well, let's go to Wimpy's, but you're buying. <laughs> but I'll forgive you. And so he just, you know, he comes to the astonishing number of seven times. He's almost like resolved in his mind, I think I can pull it off seven times, but that's about it. So he goes to Jesus with the question, how often do I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? Hoping that Jesus says, seven times? Are you out of your mind? That's impossible. And then, of course, Jesus comes up with his answer, seven times, that's peanuts. But what about 77 times? Well, and if we're real and honest with ourselves, we know even seven times, even if it was only seven times. And let's be very real, a lot of people in the church already have problem forgiving somebody once. And they're walking around with anger, with um, grudges, uh, with pride, with entitlement. I was right, so I'm waiting for the other one to, to, make, to take the first step. No, we need to learn, some of us need to learn just to forgive for the first time in our lives. And that will set us free from so many stuff in our lives, in our bodies even. I truly believe that. And I preach all around the world every Sunday. And this is just one of the, the biggest things in the church, the lack of forgiveness. And I just understood from Adrian that you went through a whole cycle and teaching on, on forgiveness, and that's important. And you probably might, not, might need another four because some people will still not get it. But just humble yourself and start forgiving. And I know some, it's easier said than done in some situations. For, and for many people, it will be a journey because they, they just can't find the strength and the grace even, because they have been victimized. And being a victim is also very real. And that's where you need help, pastoral help, somebody to lend you an ear, and you just unburden your soul. That's the start. And then the actual forgiveness can be the end of a process. So don't think, you know, it's just a switch of a button, but it starts with a conscious decision, a deliberate decision, I'm going to do it. It's going to be hard, it's going to be tough, it's going to be a hurtful journey, but I'm, I want wholeness, the wholeness that Jesus preaches. Anyway, this is a rabbit trail. Forget it. But it, no, don't forget it. <laughs> now, let's, let's go to the, the final stop. And that's where the disciples are with Jesus in the garden. So it's three years in their internship. And by, and by now, they know he's God. He's not just the son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is the Messiah. He is their Lord. He is their Savior. He is their all in all. He's the one that, we, that they've proclaimed, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never betray you. It just, the whole thought doesn't even occur in my mind. I cannot think, I cannot see myself ever do that. But anyway, let's look at the story. Let's zoom in in Matthew 26, verse 20 and 22, where Jesus says, I, will, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And then, greatly distressed so this is during the meal and it's almost like all of them one after the other they're looking for you know a quiet one-on-one -on -one in the halls or in the in the bathroom and all of them individually they say to Jesus and reads here greatly distressed each one asked in turn am I the one Lord 
So what's happening here is so crucial for, in our lives as believers. So in their journey with Christ, they've learned more about him, but they've also learned more about themselves. And so they know, and they, they've come to this point where they realize, yes, he is my Lord, he's my God, he's my Savior, I will do anything. I will, I will walk through the fire, I will go through fire for him. Yet, I'm still capable of betrayal, but I don't want to be the one. And that's what's happening here. And I think for believers, we need that kind of reality in our lives. Because it's so easy to proclaim, to worship, and use all these big words. But if we're truly honest, until we die and be with Jesus, we will be capable of betrayal. We don't want it. We can't. It's very hard to imagine that we will ever do it. But we need to be very honest with ourselves. Yes, I know. I can't, I can't imagine it, but I know I will be. I'm still capable of betrayal. And I think that kind of self-awareness... That has been crucial for the disciples' ongoing journey after the resurrection. In Matthew 26, same chapter, the denial and the abandonment, where Peter comes to the point and says, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And it's Peter again who's most verbal and articulate about it, but Immediately after it says, and all the other disciples vowed the same. So Peter spoke the words, and the others were just saying, no, I'm with Peter here. But a little bit more quiet, a little bit more reserved, a little bit more obscure. But they all vowed the same. They vowed the same, even if we have to die with you, I will never deny you. And then when Jesus is arrested, in verse 56, when he is arrested, when they put the handcuffs on, at that point, all the disciples deserted him and fled. They were gone. And then Jesus is taken to the cross. And then Jesus dies. So there's a gap. Because they, they don't see Jesus. Um, you know, and then Peter, even, you know, in verse 74, where Jesus, where the prediction that before the crows, you will have denied me. And he's big words again. Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And then Peter walks off and he cries those bitter tears. And I don't know where you are in your life, but I've been a, cry a follower of Christ for 45 years. I've, had, I've cried bitter tears of disappointment with myself. And we identify with Peter and you know, it's, it's, it's by God's grace that he didn't hang himself at this point. And, and of course, we get a resurrection because then stuff starts to change. So we have the picture now. All the disciples, they've deserted him. Jesus dies. He's gone. But he gave them the coordinates of where he wanted to meet him one last time. So just imagine yourself being in the shoes of those disciples. I'm going to go but I, I'm a little bit scared. What's going to happen? What's Jesus going to do? What is he going to say? Because the last thing he knows is that he saw us all run away in betrayal. So I think we're in for a big spanking here or whatever. And then the miracle happens. And that is so beautiful when we turn to the final chapter, Matthew 28, and the final verses. 
um, verse 16. Then the, the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And then when they saw him, I don't know what your translation says, but my translation said, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Now, what did it look like? They didn't have a worship team, I guess. So did they just start saying, we worship you, we worship you? No, no, no. I'll, I'll show you what it looked like. Uh, and it's the most plausible uh, image that, that we have from how people worship in those days. They would do this. They would just lay prostrate with their hands stretched forward. All 11. That's the only appropriate response they could think of. But some of them doubted. I think there were five. Because they had a yellow sticker on their back. The thing is, we don't know who, who, who are the ones who doubted. But when they, we know they were there. Some people, they were just uh, elated. He's back, he's back. Party, party, bry. But there were, you know, like half of them, maybe half of them, they said, what on earth is going on here? It's, he looks like Jesus, but is that Jesus? You know, I don't know. So, and we identify with that. And it doesn't matter whether you identify with the doubter or the one who's elated. It's the reality that happens right after that. Because then Jesus walks closer into that inner circle. And then he speaks those amazing words. He came to them and told the disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So he's not even debriefing them on the betrayal or whatever or addressing the issue not saying, okay, guys, I actually understand, you know, so don't, so no sweat, no problem, you know, it's water over, under the bridge. No, 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 he's not even addressing the incident or the actually, it's not an incident, it's a drama, the betrayal. He doesn't even address it, but he comes straight to business. Go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and, and teach those new disciples to obey all the commands that I've given you. And be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So I can see the doubters, you know, with this clear command and commission that Jesus gives them, I can see the doubters lying prostrate still. But Jesus, I have questions. You know, I need answers. You know, I'm, I'm still struggling with all of this stuff. So, you know, and I'm not ready. I'm not ready. You know, I need to sort of process stuff here. I need to reflect on it. I need to have a sit down with you so I can, you know, I can get my ducks in a row and then, then I'll be able to listen and actually do something and action on it. And it's almost as if Jesus says, I don't care how you feel about what I'm about to say. I don't care. What I'd like to see is, remember guys what you did three years ago when I called you to get out of your boats and follow me? Did you think twice? No, you jumped ship and followed me. What about just doing it? Because you will drag your own humanness with you until you die. That's not going to change. With the ebb and flow of faith versus unbelief, it's part of our reality. And Jesus says, and I will work in and through that. And that beefs up your self-image, all of us. Jesus uses us despite the fact that we don't have our acts together. And that's just so encouraging. That's probably why I'm still with the women and why they, don't, why they don't fire me. Because if there's somebody who has, you know, um, philosophical, theological questions, 
things that I don't understand, I can't comprehend. You know, I'm, I've come to a point where I can't, completely cannot figure God out. He doesn't make sense at all, the way he answers and doesn't answer prayer. There's so many questions we don't have answers to. Well, praise God we have Jesus, because if we wouldn't have Jesus, it would make no sense at all. But first, in Jesus, we get to see the true character of God lived out in the flesh. And just the very fact that he commits himself to work with this bunch of mavericks, the 11 disciples, and the result, one of the results is that we are gathered here this morning because somebody said, you know, okay, guys, when you die, I'll, I'll, get, I'll carry on. Through the centuries, through the church history, with all its dramatic, stupid things that have been done in the name of God, in the name of Christ, that God continues to build his church right through that, right through you and me. You know what it does to me? It just makes my heart pump a little harder with excitement and anticipation because now I know if I go to, go to the spur and start chatting with, with the server, this, you know, those who serve the food, or, or I go to a pub. Well, I'm Dutch, I go to a pub. Because that's where the lost souls are. That's, you know, we don't have to go to, you know, those places that have never heard the gospel. We start right here and right now. And, and the whole idea that God wants to use us, acts of mercy, a, 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 a word of encouragement, of comfort, or just being with people. I was just, uh, last Thursday, I was, until midnight, I, we were at the pub, and then the pub owner, he sat with us and unburdened his soul. And, you know, a lost soul, so deeply lost and troubled. And then there's three believers there who can speak words of encouragement and help him to see Jesus right through all the drama. And he's got a long way to go. But to have people around you that have a word of encouragement. And, you know, for them, the church has done. Because they, the, the church is judging them. They've already pronounced judgment over him. And what would Jesus do? Anyway, so I'll get carried away here. But what does he do with the, with the worship and the doubts? He does exactly the same. Whatever you feel, and we live in an era where it's all about emotion, what we feel, what we experience. You can't build your faith on experience and emotions. Oh, they can give you temporary relief, but when the emotions is gone, you can't build your faith on that. It's helpful. We have those great times with God and worship and in his presence. But when you walk out of the door, you're on your own with him. And then you have to rely on what you truly believe deep down. And which is some, something that can go completely against of all that you feel at that very moment. And sometimes our faith only boils down to some very simple words. Because we deep down believe that God is the one who sees and who hears and is with us, even though there might not be a solution or a cure or a healing. But the very fact that God says, my child, I hear you. I see you. That. And um, this is also where the circle closes. It starts with obedience and it ends with obedience. How we feel about it is not the primary concern. What we do with it matters most. And that's where the circle comes around when you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus. 
when the angel comes to Mary and Joseph, he says two things. First of all, you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And they, the people that would see Jesus ministering and growing up with him, they will see Emmanuel. That's what people would come to conclude. Observing the life of Jesus, they could only come to one conclusion. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And, and to just the whole idea that we are, he's, we're representing him. And we can be the God with us in the lives of others, our neighbors. You know, I once had an interview, I was once interviewed by a Christian magazine and I used one of my quotes. They always put it out, of, take it out of context because it's such a nice, nice soundbite. And so it was big in those bold letters on the front and the cover of the magazine, I'm not responsible to save my neighbor, but I'm responsible to be the best possible neighbor. And that's where my ministry, that's where all our ministries start. And we need to take courage and faith from the lives and, and the ministry of the disciples, how these messed up guys went into the world and they just did it. And the, the world is transformed and lives were transformed as a result of that. So God be with you as you take the bull by the horns in a hopefully fresh and committed way to his glory. Amen.